You join me in Job chapter 2. We're in the early stages of a series in Job. We will look at the whole chapter today. Job chapter 2. So let's pray. God, you are a preserving God, and in you we take refuge. We say to you, O Lord, that you are our Lord, and that we would have no other to serve and to be protected by. O Lord, we have no good apart from you. Everything we would call good that would exist in your absence is not good at all. We pray that that as we study your word, you would bring us more and more um, to a place of seeing your goodness and your glory and your greatness in all that you do and in all that you don't do. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand once again for the reading of God's word. Job chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with a loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon them, they they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. 
how do you comfort a grieving soul? Or where does your own soul turn for comfort when you're in grief? And I ask that with a little bit of a sense of uh, caution because the story's not really about that. And also, the things we're about to hear are not the things you would want to present to somebody on the first moments of grief. These are the things that serve as a foundation for us before we get into grief. And they are a tremendous comfort, but comforting grieving people um, takes a lot of wisdom and discernment. But I ask that because I think these questions of where do we turn in grief and what is comfort in grief um, lead us into the heart of this message. I, as, as a comforter, always want to kind of highlight the silver lining of the dark cloud. There's something in this, there's something salvageable, something to be grateful for. Uh, um, or, I also want to assure them that this is temporary. This too shall pass. And that's the way we comfort people. But what if there is not a silver lining? And where does this idea that this suffering is temporary, where does that come from in the Bible? I was just recently trying to comfort a woman going through a great deal of difficulty, and I wanted to say so badly, God will make things better. That would just be making up stuff. And honestly, because God is gracious and merciful, he very often does lead us out of trials. But the question I think this text moves us to is to, to ask, what if he doesn't lead us out of the trial? Is he still just? Is he still good? Is he still supremely sovereign? Job here in this story is brought up to the very rim of death. And we'll see in a moment, the people around him pretty much view him as having gone over that rim. He's as good as dead. But where is our hope when we are as good as dead? And this is a question we should begin to ask now, or in times of blessing, a question for which our answer will define our the way we live our lives. Where, where is our hope when, when we're as good as dead? When it's as bad as it can possibly be? In other words, when all is lost, except for God, we have lost relatively very little compared to what we have gained, if we have God. So Job's trial, his suffering, highlights God and his attributes, putting them in stark relief. And so I want to begin by actually looking at his suffering. I want to look at the source of his suffering and then the severity of his suffering. And not to focus on suffering itself, but to see how his suffering leads us to God, to an understanding of God and his attributes in the here and now, whether we ourselves may be in a season of suffering or blessing or most likely for both of us, both. So let's look at the source of Job's suffering. Um, the narrator opens it on a second uh, scene in the heavenly court. We saw one last week in chapter 1. It's very similar, almost identical. Um, the host of heaven, including Satan, is there to give a report to God, who is the king in his court, and everyone is subject to him. 
In verse 2, God asks him for a report. Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And then again, as in chapter 1, um, it's the Lord who brings up Job, not Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. And again, for the third time, basically the same sequence of attributes uh, or commendation of Job's character. He is blameless, an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God goes on and he says that Job, despite all that Satan did to him, taking his family and his wealth away, um, despite all of that, he still holds fast his integrity. He says, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Without reason. That, that's an important thing that God says there. He could be saying, you incited me against him vainly, and it, basically it didn't work out for you, Satan. Which is true. But more likely he's saying, you incited me against him for no good reason. There was nothing in Job that merited this thing that had happened to him. And it's an important reaffirmation that Job is a man of integrity. That there was never a reason or a cause for God to execute these, what would generally be perceived as curses against him. There's no cause for it. And we'll see in a moment more, but just because there's no cause does not mean there's no purpose. Now, how is it that Job incited God against, or Satan incited Job, God against Job? I mean, it almost sounds like he goaded God into this, like he baited him, or he, he, but God is not stirred or provoked by emotion the way we are. Satan can't just goad him into something. God will not do anything at all outside of his will. So Satan couldn't provoke him into doing anything he hadn't already chosen to do beforehand. But it was Satan who called on God to reach out his hand and to strike Job and to take his possessions from him, again, for no good reason. When Job or Satan responds to, to God, uh, there is still more you could take from Job. You've lifted the hedge from his family and his wealth, but what about Job himself? What about his own body? There's kind of an eerie proverb. He says, skin for skin. And people don't really know what that means, skin for skin. Um, there was two, there's a multitude of views, two that I find somewhat compelling. It is a commercial transaction of kind of pelt for pelt. Like it's an equality. Job would consider his own life as equal worth to the lives of all the others and all the wealth that he lost. Another view is very similar, that he would trade the skin of his family for his own skin. He'd give them up to kind of save his own hide. Um, But I think Satan himself kind of tells us what he means. He says, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But, he says, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. 
And God says, and this is shocking, and one commentator said, this should shock us. He says, okay, just don't kill him. I mean, what is the meaning of this? Why doesn't God protect Job? In verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So Job and his friends throughout this book, throughout their discourse, will wrestle with this question of why. Why did this happen to Job? And I'll be honest, I don't know that they get to the bottom of the why question. And even for us, it's hard to answer, even though we have this behind-the-scenes view that they didn't have. But what is more clear is the who. And I think that's the point. We could say the who, the the source of, of Job's affliction is Satan, and rightly so. But once again, someone else is presented as the primary operator here, the, the chief executor of these events. And Job himself identifies the ultimate source or cause of his own suffering. As he said in last week's passage, in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then here in our passage, down in verse 10, he says, Shall we receive good from God and not also receive evil? So he identifies the chief cause, the chief source of his suffering as God. Now, it'd be nice, maybe, I probably wouldn't be able to comprehend it, but the Bible doesn't give us like a mechanical diagram of how God uses evil for his own purposes. But it does testify plainly to two simple and clear truths that God uses evil for good and that he is good in his use of evil. Classic example, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says after being uh, abused by his brothers and thrown into prison and going through all these things, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Um, The Westminster Confession has a really helpful summary of this teaching in chapter 3, verse 1 on God's decree. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Not some of what comes to pass, whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, God works through things, but God is the worker. So in short, God has an eternal purpose in everything. Not just some things, but everything. Uh, I was joking to Michael this week about how studying Job was putting my um, computer problems that I was having into perspective. Right, and the joke is, 
That's not really a real trial compared to Job's. But actually, when we think about it, even our small trials, even the seemingly useless annoyances, can actually be harder to believe that God has a purpose in that than some of the big trials. Why Why is this happening to me today? And then how much more than the big things, the good and the bad, and even those real mysterious heartbreakers, the struggle against temptation, family issues, physical ailments, those things have purpose designed by God to bring about the ultimate good. We're all familiar with Romans 8, 28. We know that those for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But what is that good? All things work together for good. Is it a promise that the, the, the sun will break through the clouds? Is that what it's saying? That eventually we'll arrive at a place of happiness and comfort and ease. But that's not what God promises us. He may give us that, but it is our salvation that he has in mind. That he's ushering us into his presence and his glory and all to the praise of his glorious grace. We read on from verse 28 in Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. God works all things together for the good of those who love him, ending in glorification, our glorification. That That's far better than you won't have this ailment, ailment anymore, right? That's far bigger than that. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, uh, The End for Which God Created the World, he has this to say, Thus we see that the great end or purpose of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed but one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. In other words, the one thing all of God's purposes are driving toward is the glory of God. He says, by which name it is most commonly called in Scripture and is fitly compared to an effulgence or emanation of light from a luminary. Light is the external expression, exhibition, and manifestation of the excellency of the luminary. The sun, for instance. It is the abundant, extensive emanation and communication of the fullness of the sun to innumerable beings that partake of it. It is by this that the sun itself is seen and his glory beheld and all other things are discovered. It is by a participation of this communication from the sun that surrounding objects receive all their luster, beauty, and brightness. So everything is to the glory of God, and everything is from the glory of God. This is the end, the purpose of all his works, his glory. The events we perceive and feel to be good are to that end. The ones we perceive and feel to be very bad are appointed and designed by God for that end, the the glory of God. This is why we can say he's the primary cause or even the ultimate source of Job's suffering. 
And still we affirm the goodness of God because what men intend for evil, God intends for good. Now it's not just the source of Job's suffering that, that manifests God's glory, but it's also the severity, in fact, that magnifies God. Um, Job is stripped down to nothing. He's reduced to the fringes of death. There's no silver lining here from any earthly perspective. And God's worth as an object of faith and hope shines through in this passage anyway. So we'll look at the severity of Job's suffering. In verse 7 again, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. I'm I'm pretty wimpy. If I get like a canker sore, this is a loathsome sore. That sounds horrible. Loathsome sores or boils. And from from your toes to your head, no matter how you sit, you can't get off of the loathsome sore. There's no source of comfort. The rest of the book gives us a little bit more detail about his affliction. Job says in uh, chapter 7, verse 5, My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. Um, in chapter 30, verse 30, My skin turns black and falls from me. Um, chapter 19, verse 20, My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. And 7.14, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. So there's a psychological component to this ailment. 19 verse 17, this may be um, just an image or maybe uh, just a, a result of his disease. My breath is strange to my wife and I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. His flesh is probably stinking and putrid. This is not good. Uh, people try to medically identify Job's disease, which is interesting. Um, Hebrew scholar Kleins, uh, David Kleins, has a list. Um, leprosy, elephantitis, smallpox, ulcer, chronic eczema, syphilis, uh, ulcerous boil known as the Baghdad button or Jericho rose, pellagra, scurvy, vitamin deficiency, um, in spite of his list, Klein says, it's better to admit our ignorance of the precise malady. I think I agree with that. The narrator here further describes Job's misery in verse 8, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now, we've had wood stoves at various times, and if you have a wood stove, you always end up with a pile of ashes uh, somewhere. And every home probably at this time would have had a pile of ashes. Um, Initially, I thought this was speculative, but I'm more more convinced that it's more likely um, that Job was not just sitting in his personal ash heap, but he was actually sitting at the local dump, um, the place outside the city where the refuse is burned. Um, the uh, Old Testament background commentary is a useful tool. It, it says that Job was sitting among the ashes, that the ashes mentioned were most likely found on a dung hill or town dump outside the city limits where dung from the town was periodically burned. 
Mourners in the Near East went to sit amidst the dung ash heap and lacerate themselves. Um, Priam, the father of Hector in the Iliad, rolled himself in the dung of the city ash heap. So this is a, 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 an ancient way of expressing grief and, and even identifying oneself with the place of death. Um, there's also a connection here with the broken pottery. Uh, the same commentary says, it's not clear in this context whether the broken pottery were used to scratch the skin for relief or to scrape the body as a sign of grief. In most cases in scripture, they are used for the latter purpose. Um, in Mesopotamia and in a uh, Ugaritic tale, the mound of potsherds appears to have been the name uh, uh, for the abode of the dead. So this is not just where you'd burn the, the dung, but also where you'd put trash, like broken pots. So there seems to be a connection there with this local uh, city dump. Wherever Job was, whether it was at home or here, the, the image is that of the reduction of a man of wealth, of status, of family, to this solitary figure on an ash heap, scraping his skin with a, a discarded piece of pottery. This is a man that is as close to death as you can get without actually dying. And his wife seems to kind of hint at the same. She says, in verse 9, when, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's like, that's all you have left to do. Your integrity is not doing you any good. You might as well just go ahead and you're already basically there anyway. His friends, when they arrive, likewise seem to suggest that their actions, or by their actions, that they view Job as, as good as dead. These men, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, um, they all suggested live in relative proximity to Edom, where Job would probably live. Um, but in different areas, and they hear separately of Job's destruction, and they, they somehow, it would probably take some time, send letters back and forth, but we're going to meet and we're going to come go and see Job. And their stated purpose in the text is, to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. To show Job sympathy and to comfort him. So as they approach the, the city dump or the, wherever Job was, there's this withered, haggard, disgusting man, his face contorted with pain. And they couldn't recognize him as their friend Job. They had to get closer to, that is Job. But their response is to mourn, to turn to mourning. And we could wonder whether they're mourning Job's losses with him or whether they're mourning the loss of Job in front of him. Uh, while I was going through seminary, there's this really neat older gentleman named Mark um, that came and he started taking classes. And this had been a long time dream of his, and he was just so excited and enthusiastic to be there. But he's also a man who struggled with with severe depression. Um, and in the spring semester, everyone goes and, and does a project. You can go to your home church. And so he went back home to Illinois. And about halfway through the semester, uh, we heard that he probably is not going to come back. He feels like he's too old. He feels like the workload's too much, and he's very, very depressed. And so myself, a friend Mike, and a friend Tom, 
We're kind of the three friends of Job in this story. We drive out all the way to Illinois to show Mark sympathy and comfort. When we got there, we said some stuff, but we're kind of at a loss of what to say. And we drove away with a sort of collective dissatisfaction about what we had accomplished with Mark. Mark never did come back. But that story to say is that we go in with the intention of sympathy and comfort, and when we arrive, sometimes the situation is above our pay grade. I think that's what happened here with Job's friend. This is too much for them. We've all heard preachers say that the best thing that Job's friends did was sit in silence for seven days, and this is true, <clears throat> true, because the things they say are not very good. Um, and really, any book about grief will suggest that often it's best just to be present and to listen and to say nothing, which is all very true. However, I, I'm inclined to agree with Christopher Ash that their purpose to comfort Job fell woefully short by just sitting in silence for seven days. Because they were just overcome with how hopeless Job's situation seemed. Um, Ash says, it's worthy pausing to ask how comfort works. The Hebrew word nacham, it is not the same as empathy. Empathy may be inarticulate because it focuses on entering into the feelings and experience of the sufferer as best we can, but comfort must be articulate and active. Empathy may be silent, but comfort must include speech. To comfort involves speaking to the mind and heart of the sufferer in such a way as to change his or her mind and heart. Comfort is an action sometimes called speaking to the heart that hopes and intends to bring about a change in how the sufferer thinks and feels about his or her suffering. In other words, comfort requires action. Empathy can just feel bad for the other person. Comfort requires action. Uh, Ash goes on to say, it is as if they call for the hearse and sit by Job with the coffin open and ready for him. There is no point taking talking to a corpse. One just weeps by it. To them, Job is no longer a living person. Their silence may not be so much a silence of sympathy although it may have begun as such, but a silence of bankruptcy. They say nothing because they have nothing to say that will bring him comfort. It seems to them too late for that. So this is not to be hard on the friends, though we will be hard on the friends as we go through Job, but perhaps they did the best they could. But upon arrival, the scene just took their breath away. It was beyond their capacity to process and address, which serves to highlight the severity of Job's suffering. This situation is, from all possible earthly angles, hopeless situation. But it's by stripping away all of the earthly hopes that Job had, all of the earthly comforts, that the bare kernel of Job's faith is exposed. And he, he makes it clear that that kernel is planted firmly in the soil of God's faithful providence. And we see this in his response to his wife, in verse 9. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women. 
would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So who are these women? Who are these foolish women? He didn't, there's a definiteness to this, this statement. He didn't say to her, you are a foolish woman. He didn't say to her, you're speaking like a foolish woman. He said, you speak like one of the foolish women, as if it's a specific group. I have my own theory that, remember, they live likely in the land of Edom, away from the land of the covenant, though away from God's people. In other words, they live in a land of unbelief. So I think he's saying, you're speaking like one of the unbelieving women that live around. You're speaking as an unbeliever. And some commentators are very hard on Job's wife. Others are very merciful. And I think there's just not enough context to say what her motives were, but here's what's certain to me is that she served out of malice or out of simply foolishness or out of even sympathy for Job. She served as an instrument of Satan's agenda, as an instrument of temptation. Satan said, "You will, uh, Job will curse you to your face. And Job... By God's preserving grace, no doubt, responds with these simple words of faith. By the way, don't don't let anyone tell you that these first two chapters of Job prove that Job had a righteousness of his own. That he had a personal righteousness that was somehow satisfactory by the law to please God, which is an argument some people lean toward. It's obvious from his responses, Job is acting as a man of faith. His righteousness stems from his faith. Faith says, I believe God. Unbelief says, I'm not sure. Job's confessional inquiry here oozes belief in God. Shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? Uh, the word evil here, we might also translate calamity or disaster. Uh, evil just carries for us a moral connotation that might suggest he's telling his wife, uh, you just, God's gonna do whatever he wants and you just gotta put up with it. That's not the idea. He, he's saying we should be willing to accept all things God has given us as good, good or disastrous. And notice this, that for all that has happened to Job, and we should take this to heart for ourselves, that for all that has happened to Job, for him the emphasis is on God and his faithfulness and his wisdom. Some of the attributes Job uh, in his simple confession here clearly illustrate or assume of God um, is his sovereignty, first of all. For all the secondary causes, Job affirms, it is God who gives and God who takes, good or bad. God is sovereign over it all. He gives and he takes as he sees fit. Also the justice of God. Is it not right for God to give and take as he sees fit? Who are we to say, I am owed wealth. I am owed a family. I am owed good health. I deserve it. 
God is just to give and take as he sees fit. Also the goodness of God. If it was not good, Job could not say that it's worth accepting. Shall we not accept this? Shall we not receive this? He says we should. We should accept, receive it in our person's why? Because clearly the, the decrees of God are better than whatever I have in mind. So that's what this passage teaches us, and that's what this book teaches us. As Eric Ortland said, we need a category of useless suffering in which all that is gained from suffering is that God himself gives himself to us more deeply. So it is true that the stripping of Job magnifies the glorious excellency of the luminary, of God. The goodness of the giver so far uh, surpasses the gifts that the stripping of those gifts to get more of the giver is the highest possible gift. I, I just long that that this kind of faith would mark my own life and the life of my wife and my kids and the, and the people here. Because it, it just has such daily power, in, even in reckoning with stupid annoyances like computer problems. We say, God intended this for good. And the tremendous challenges we face as well and even the good things we receive, that, that we could say with Paul from Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I'll be honest with you, I'm intimidated by preaching the book of Job. Not because Job is long or because the subject matter is difficult or because the speeches of Job and his friends are hard to interpret. Although, yes, I'm intimidated by those things too. Um, but it's daunting because it really makes me take stock and to count the cost of following Christ. Do I really think that it's worth it to gain Christ, to lose everything? But here's what I find extraordinary. Not only does God give us himself in our suffering, but he entered into the suffering of a sinful world in the person of Jesus Christ. That Christ endured the wrath of God without cause. Like, well beyond, Job, Job was a sinner. There was cause for wrath on it. There was no cause for the suffering of Christ. And yet, despite there being no cause, there was tremendous purpose. Christ was reduced from everything to nothing. Uh, a poverty differential far beyond what Job experienced. From, from God in heaven to enduring the flames and ash of the refuge, uh, refuse pile of Gehenna outside the city. And he even endured the assaults of Satan and temptation from Satan to curse God directly from Satan's lips. 
This, this he did for us. Um, so I think the appropriate time to lift our eyes toward heaven and to ask and to, to cry out why is not when we see our suffering, but when we see his suffering on our behalf. I'll just close with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Praise God. Amen.